Good morning, everyone. I think, uh, is the microphone working or no? It is not. Now, now it is. All right, there we go. Why don't we go ahead and start with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So how are we doing this morning? Well, it's really great to uh, be with y'all again this morning as we continue to explore the theme of dealing with the scandals, but in particular, scandal or sin in the church. So if you have done uh, any sort of spending time over the course of the past month or so on the internet, reading the blogs, or following Twitter, you'll know that there are a lot of people, Catholics and non-Catholics, who are rightfully very, very upset about all that has gone on, uh, again, sort of a rekindling of some of the anger and frustration from 2002, but now really understanding in a deeper way the way that a lot of the bishops and potentially cardinals uh, did not handle this properly, and even the sin in their own lives and the covering up about it. And so you'll see a lot of the people who are angry, clamoring for a purgation or a purification of the church, a purification particularly of the hierarchy. Even, we've seen some, you know, call for or want or see God's hand working in the attorneys general um, launching these investigations into the church. In fact, today there was just, the, or yesterday, the attorney general of Vermont wanting to launch the investigation. Again, I'm not denying that maybe this is part of God's plan. In the Old Testament, the Lord used uh, the Assyrians and the Babylonians to purify Israel. But again, I'll just say my own point, I'm not really too excited or think that we should be thinking this is a good idea for the state to purify the church. That usually doesn't go very well. Might be necessary, might be the only way it can happen, because obviously it seems that a lot of our leaders are not going to, but do, do, I think it's the most prudent thing for Catholics to be wishing for this or hoping for this. Maybe their intentions are good in that, but I think you are asking for something that is not going to be uh, tremendously pleasant or tremendously merciful. And again, at one point a few weeks ago, and maybe you'll see it again, I even in looking at, at what people were talking about, they even seemed to have Catholics almost calling for a witch hunt. Uh, there was that great witch hunt mentality that even good priests um, who maybe fell in small ways were going to get thrown to the wolves. And there's almost like no room for repentance or, or, or transformation. And again, I'm not talking about criminal activity that needs to be dealt with on a state level. But it was just sort of frightening. And of course, even more, because of the internet now, everybody has an opinion. Back in 2002, if you were around, you remembered the scandal, but you didn't hear about it as much. But now it's everywhere. And of course, everybody has an opinion. Of course, I guess I have an opinion too, because I'm talking about it. But they are publicizing it and that they are furious and angry about it. And what I've seen is, is as much as maybe we should all be focused on really uh, transforming and bringing renewal in the church, what's happening is I'm seeing different faction against the church in the church, people who should be with each other. I'm angry at you because you're not angry enough, or I don't like you because you don't have the right opinion. And so we're almost turning in on ourselves, and we should really be focused on the same um, purpose or goal. So just a lot of division, a lot of infighting in the church, and there's already enough of that. I think we all need to be sort of on the same page. And as Father Champagne and I were talking about, probably not the best idea to be 
spending two hours a day perusing Twitter or the internet. Uh, it doesn't really bring about a lot of peace. So when about a few weeks ago, when uh, this all started coming about and all the, uh, the craziness and hysteria, I decided, you know, I had my own opinions, my own thoughts about this. So I decided I was going to write to the person that I thought was probably the wisest and, and holiest person that I know uh, to be able to see what this individual's um, take on the scandal was. So no, Father Champlain did not get an email from me. <laughs> yeah, it went into spam. But instead, I, I wrote to Father Jacques Philippe. Um, Father Jacques was here a few years ago, and uh, I got to spend a week with him when he preached the mission in our parish. And trust me, I mean, I'm sure most of you read something by him. He's the real deal. Not that Champagne is not the real deal, but he's the real deal. I'm not going to read the actual quote since technically he did not give me permission, although I'm sure if I read it, he wouldn't mind. However, in his new book, The Eight Doors of the Kingdom, Meditations of the Beatitudes, there's a page in there under the Beatitude, Happy are the Merciful, for they should obtain mercy, uh, called The Source of Forgiveness, that sums up exactly what he said in the quote. So I'm going to read that instead, uh, and then we can kind of go from there. Forgiveness is difficult, sometimes heroic, but it is indispensable. Without forgiveness, evil multiplies ceaselessly. Only the courage to forgive puts an end to evil's growth. Moreover, the pain someone else has caused me can only be completely cured by my forgiving that person. We see victims all around us these days, and we work hard to understand them, embrace them, encourage them to express their suffering, their anger, and their sense of injustice. We strive to help them attain recognition and recompense for the wrong they've suffered. And all of this is very good. But sometimes we overlook helping them to understand that unless they forgive the people who have hurt them, they will never fully recover from the pain. God's love is powerful enough to heal everything, but you must find the courage to decide to pass through the narrow gate of forgiveness. This choice is more demanding than the spontaneous reaction of resentment and accusation but it is a decision in favor of true life. And so that quote, uh, page 146 of The Doors of the Kingdom, The Eight Doors of the Kingdom, sums up what he said, and it can sort of act as a basis of us, our discussion moving forward. Still need justice. People who committed crimes need to go. We need to make re re uh, retribution, I'm not retribution, reparation for the sins that were committed, but we need mercy and forgiveness. So I don't know if you, any of you, as Hassie said, I'm a movie buff, so actually I'm going to talk about a couple of movies in, in this talk. In 1995, there was a movie that came out. It was a really great movie. Uh, some of you may or may not have seen called Dead Man Walking. How many of you saw Dead Man Walking? It's based off of an episode in the life of Sister Helen Prejean, uh, somewhat fictionalized, but based on the true events of this, this young man who murders this couple and then goes to prison and is facing the death sentence. And I really do suggest that you watch the movie. It's graphic, but I think it has a very good point. For a number of reasons, this film has always stuck with me. The soundtrack is also very good, but that's a whole different, whole different thing. Uh, and it's, it's her relationship with this guy, Matthew Poncelet, who played by Sean Penn. Susan Sarandon plays Ellen Prejean, who's just like, this, this sinner who has done these horrible things, but you come to find out she begins to see him as a person and his past and how his father abused him and what led to all this. And there are a couple of scenes in the film that really, really struck me. And the one was finally, it was one of them was towards the end, whenever he is about to go to the death penalty. And they sort of show this scene from the outside of the prison. And there's this large crowd just cheering for and screaming for his death, warning him to die. He's a sinner. He deserves death. He deserves judgment. And I was always struck by that. I mean, as much as maybe he indeed deserved punishment, should Christians really be rejoicing in the death of another person? I mean, we really, there's one thing about saying, you deserve this, possibly. We maybe need to show mercy. 
But this attitude was, struck me 20 years later, still so disturbed by this. And the way that we, particularly in a mob mentality, can dehumanize the sinner. And that's what's crucial here. That, that the typical way of dehumanizing the sinner. Now, it can happen, as we see in the movie, reducing to their sin or to their crime. Very easy to dehumanize the sinner when we're on social media, when we don't know the person. None of you have ever met Cardinal McCarrick. None of you have ever met or hope, potentially a lot of these priests who've done these things. And again, I am not, I'm going to repeat this over and over again because I don't want someone to come to say that Father's not saying that. They deserve justice. These are horrible crimes. But they're human beings too. They're human beings too. We, we focus on the humanity of the victims, and we need to in their pain. But there's also the humanity of the people who are sinners. Not just in this case, but in general. Every sinner, the one who commits the worst crime is still a human who has dignity, who has a past. Maybe they don't have a conscience. Maybe they're unrepentant. But whatever it is, but it makes us, makes it very, very easy for us to judge, to condemn. When what happens is, we, again, we stand on the outside, we stand in the back, and we look, and then we don't really see their humanity. We don't get up close and see them as persons. And so what's interesting in the movie is that she focuses so much on the humanity of the murderer, there comes a point when the families of the victims come up, and they're really upset. What about us? What about us? And then she comes to realize the humanity of both. That's what I loved about that movie. It's not siding with the criminal versus the victim. It's both. They both have a story. They're both humans. And even though I don't necessarily, I'm not condoning all the politics of Sister Helen Prejean, but the fact of the matter is everyone needs mercy. Everyone does. The sinner and the victim. No matter what crime is committed, no matter what sin is committed, and that the great, our great sin is when we distance ourselves and begin to dehumanize others. Whether it be dehumanize the victims and not care about them, as, as, as often did happen. There was a lot of that. Where there was not caring about the victim from the, the leaders in the church quite often. They distanced themselves instead of saying, I want to get to know you. I want to understand your pain. I want to help you learn to forgive. I want to help you learn to find some sort of a healing. But we can easily do the same thing. You know, this is, is something that, that, that really struck me as I was preparing and meditating on this, is that every sinner, and again, we're talking about, in a certain sense, yes, the scandal, but really more, we're talking about every sinner. Every sinner, no matter how big it is, if a sin is or how small it is, every sinner is a son or a daughter. Every sinner has a mom, has a dad, has siblings, who have relatives, who have friends, who have family. Hopefully some of them care for them and love them. And a lot of the times the people who commit the gravest sins don't have that. They're often themselves the victims of abuse, as we'll see. But they're defined by relationships. And so we forget that. And so it's so easy for us to condemn people to hell. But what about their parents whose hearts are torn because of what they've done? Who indeed maybe want justice, but also understand the need for mercy? I think if any of you in here maybe have a child who's committed some crime or committed some grave sin, hey, you may understand, hey, justice needs to be served. I'm not saying they should get off scot-free. But hey, this is my son. I love them. It's so easy for you to point the finger and condemn and judge because you don't know them. You don't love them. You're at a distance. But I'm up close. I've got my hands dirty in raising this person. And so if you truly love someone, if you have a relationship with them, you, you can't wish for their destruction. You can't wish for their damnation. You can't wish for their pain. You know, one of the most powerful stories I heard uh, was from someone who had dealings with uh, an abusive priest. Um, I'm not going to give you any names about this. And, you know, this priest had been rightfully accused of some pretty terrible stuff. 
And I mean, trash in the media, people calling for his head. And this guy did some stuff. He should be in prison for life. Horrible, horrible things. But this priest called one day uh, the, this, the, the office uh, where this woman was working. Uh, he, he, he had to have some business done. I forgot what it was. And she recognized who it was. And through the conversation on the phone, she realized that, that the priest was suicidal because he was so depressed, so down on himself, whether it would be repentance or mental illness, I don't know. But she sat on the phone and talked that priest out of killing himself. Think about that. How many of us would be willing to do that or think, oh, that priest is better off dead for what he did? Here is someone who, who, who talked to the priest, didn't just read articles about him, and was able to say, as bad as, and he, she knew what he did. She knew what he did to be able to say, hey, don't kill yourself. There's still hope. The Lord still loves you, even for what you've done. Can anyone deny that this is true? I mean, we may not want to. We may want to say that God hates this person and destroys them. But no, the Lord does not wish for the death or destruction of anyone. He doesn't. And neither should we. And so when we get close, or we attempt to get close to the sinner, again, whether it be the priest or whether it be anybody who's a sinner, particularly someone who commits grave sins, we're going to realize that many of them have been victims themselves. Victims of abuse, victims of neglect, lack of love. And again, I'm not making any excuse for what they do, not at all. But possibly this might reduce some of their culpability or at least lead us to be a bit more understanding. The statistics are clear. Most people who abuse, at least sexually, have been abused. If you go to prison and you see the guys that have done there, these often horrible crimes, 95% today didn't have dads. Their dads might have been in prison, grew up in homes. They were abused. They didn't get the love they needed. Again, I'm not making excuses, but we need to understand and something I've learned in my own life and trying to teach others is that the key for truly forgiving others and showing mercy and passing from justice to mercy and not calling too much for justice is understanding, is getting close, is seeing the person and understanding where they came from, what they went through, and what led them, quite possibly, to make these self-destructive choices they're making. But we don't do it. It's just so easy to put people in a box. And I give you two examples, and I use the examples all the time, and some of you, if you've heard me talk before, probably have heard me talk about it. I remember I was teaching catechism back when I was in the seminary, the summer catechism. And there was this boy who was just a terror. I mean, this kid was horrible. He's talking back at his teacher and everything. And finally, the kid basically told his teacher something horrible, and the teacher couldn't do it anymore, and father wasn't there. So guess what? They bring him to seminarian. And so the kid sat down, and you could see the anger on his face. so angry at me. And I said, what, what, what happened? And, uh, and again, my natural reaction is I'm just going to punish this kid and shame him. And granted, I, I've, in my anger, I've done that before, and I regret it. But I said... What's the deal? What's going on? And he told me what happened. I said, son, tell, tell me about your family. Tell me about your, your, your relationship with your dad. He goes, I don't, I don't know my dad. The boy just started crying, crying, crying. Never seen him. And, and I said, how does it make you feel? And he says, I'm hurt, but I'm really angry. So let me tell you something right now, son. I said, you're not a punk. You're not. Because of the anger that you didn't get the love or the attention from your dad, you're acting like a punk. You're trying to get attention. And all that's going to do is get you bad attention. I said, I don't know how we're going to do it. We're going to find a figure out a way to make you understand who you are and your identity, that you are loved by God the Father. But if you keep acting this way, you will be defined as a punk. And I, mean, I just saw the kids start crying and crying. And for the rest of the time, the attitude changed. The teacher's like, what did you tell him, Father? Well, you know... 
I try to tell him he was loved, but I try to bother to understand where this kid came from. The story that, that is, I tell all the time, the one that's the most powerful, uh, we used to go and do work at the juvenile detention center with the missionaries of charity. And what we'd do is we'd sit with these kids who are all under 17 and talk to them uh, before mass or if they were going to confession. And this one kid was there and I said, you know, why are you here? And the kid was 16. And he said, I think he had stolen television or stolen something. This is, this is almost 20 years ago. And, uh, and I said, but why? You know, what's, what's your story? You know, why are you doing this? And, or, you know, what's your, your background? Where are your parents? And I'll never forget, the boy looked at me and said, when I was born, my dad tried to sell me on the black market for $5,000 to buy cocaine. Oh. And I said, man, how did that knowledge impact you? How, how did you come to understand that? And he goes, I mean, I said, do you do, you do drugs? No. Do you steal? Yes, obviously you steal. Um, but do, do you have sex? Do you drink? Whatever. I said, what do you do? You can't have knowledge like that without some self-destructive behavior. Because at the beginning of your life, you were told you're not worth more than a couple nights of drugs use. I remember the kid pulled up his sleeve. It was covered in cigarette burn marks. He goes, I do this. I burn myself. And that's what happens. And again, these are extreme cases. But it's the truth, y'all. A lot of the people, if you look at prison, who do, there have been studies who do violent crimes, often have had violence done to them. They were told, you're not lovable, you're not good, you're not made in the image of God. And so people act out that way, particularly people who act out sexually. Many of them, victims of abuse or neglect, they say, my sexuality isn't made anything, so why? Why do I do this? And so a lot of the times, they're doing it, and in a certain sense, they don't know what they're doing. It's not because they hate others, it's because they hate themselves. And that's why I think that, that our necessity of having understanding, even of these horrible priests, many of them who've been abused themselves, the words of Jesus, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Not making, Jesus is not making excuses, but he is asking forgiveness because they often don't know what they're doing. They're not fully choosing this volitionally for other words. And I think this should be our words too, especially when it's so hard to show mercy, when we're angry and we're frustrated and we, we want justice to be able to pray, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. That, that's, that's the most powerful prayer there probably is when it comes to mercy. Not that the Divine Mercy Chapel is not important. I'm not saying that at all. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Because that's what the Lord's attitude was in, in approaching the sinner, particularly the sinner who, who came after himself. I came after him. It was one of tremendous mercy, of trying to almost make excuses for the sinner to show them mercy. One thing is he did, he tried to make excuses, he tried to show mercy, but Jesus never, ever, ever shamed someone. He never shamed them. And this is what I think we are seeing in our culture. There's a book written several years ago by a guy named John Ronson called, So, You've Been Publicly Shamed. And it is a disturbing book. He talks about how through social media, people who've done these small little things, these little mistakes from the past, or things they probably shouldn't have posted on Facebook or Twitter, had their whole lives destroyed by this mob looking to shame them. And I see the same thing happening today. I am not saying that some of these sins should not be exposed and that we should not have a purification of the church. But is it necessary to express everything? Is it necessary to drag even the guilty's name through the mud? Is it necessary to shame them? Why do we want to shame other people? Why do we want to do that? Jesus never did. He never said that, hey, people who are sinners should be shamed. Think of the Jesus with the, the, the woman caught in adultery. This woman's caught in adultery. You think of it, red-handed. Maybe she doesn't have, she's, her clothes are disheveled. She's brought in front of the crowd. They're ready to stone her. Imagine the shame she felt. Jesus came up to her and says, you know, is anyone here to judge you? Neither am I. Go and sin no more. He didn't say, 
how dare you? Or, hey, everybody, look at this woman. Look what she did. He didn't go on Twitter and say horrible things about the lady. But we want to do it. Catholics don't shame other people for their sin. They don't do it. Simply they don't. You know, what, what should we do? These people who've committed these horrible things, yeah, they need to bring be brought to justice. And there's a certain sense of bringing forth to light what they've done might give other victims the courage to come forward. That's a good thing. I'm not saying that at all, that we should have them to come forward. And it all might also be a way to protect other people in the future. But we've got to check our own hearts. Do we really want what's good? Do we really want to bring healing? Or do we have some desire to shame? Because so many people live with shame already for their sins. I'm not just talking about the priests, but the people that we want to shame for sexual sins, or the people that we want to shame for violent sins or crimes or whatever. We want to put it on the internet. We want to make fun of them. We want to talk to people about it. We want to gossip about it. They live with it already. Do we really need to pin a scarlet A on them? I mean, think of it. This is the whole thing from the scarlet letter. You know, here's Hester Perrin, shame for what she's done, but she's got to walk around with the A. Jesus didn't make people do that. We don't need to make people do that either. Trust me, we've all got enough shame and sin in our lives. And this is something that I'll be honest with you, and Father Trump, I might agree, and Father Steve too. Priests, as much as you think we may judge people, we first of all really don't really care, and we also forget most of what you tell us. But we, we want to show mercy. Hey, we're going to call you to conversion and try quit, quit doing that, but we're not there to shame anybody. We're not there to expose your sins to other people. We believe in discretion. We all have, there are two types of people in the world. People who have skeletons in their closet and everybody knows about it, and people who have skeletons in their closet that nobody knows about. Now, I'm not saying that we need to cover up anything for crime or malicious, vindictive behavior. That needs to be brought to trial. It needs to be brought to justice. But the sins that we commit, often out of weakness, often sins of our childhood, do we really want something that we've done 20 years ago to be brought back into the media when we've repented and changed? People can change. We've got to understand that. And granted, true pedophiles, for whatever reason, they probably cannot change their inclination. They may be able to change when they're acting on it. Again, I keep making this caveat so nobody freaks out and says that Father thinks that there's not a scandal. There truly is a scandal. But it's not our job to, spin, to pin the scarlet A. It's not our job to shame people. We've got to be willing to show them mercy. Bring them to justice, not cover anything up if it's a great, great sin. We're not there to shame people. We do not define people by their sin. Not only because it's unjust, because guess one day it might happen to you. All right? We're going to be out there pointing our fingers at everybody, condemning them, demanding justice, demanding all these type of things. The measure that you measure out will be measured back to you. You can never show too much mercy. You don't want to let people walk all over you, but you can never show too much mercy. Through all of this, I keep thinking, or I've kept thinking about Matthew chapter 18, the parable of the unforgiven servant. I mean, when we, if you're tempted to get online and, and post some nasty thing about how so-and-so needs to face justice in the church, maybe you're right. If you want to shame somebody, you want to shame a friend of yours by gossiping about them, go back and read Matthew 18. He was forgiven a lot. And then what did he do? He went and shook down someone who had an opinion of what he owned the master. Master was not very, very pleased. Again, none of Christ's parables or this parable is trying to say that we don't hold people accountable, that we don't owe people stuff, that we shouldn't pay back our debts. It's never making an excuse for sin. But we've got to be merciful to others because we've been shown mercy. The more mercy we've been shown, the more thankful that we are that we've been forgiven, the more we're willing to show it to others. And so usually the people who are the most merciful are the ones who have the deepest awareness of the Father's mercy towards them. If you've never experienced that mercy, then guess what? It's going to be very, very hard for you to show mercy to others. 
Uh, this is true. I mean, this is the key. This is, I mean, this is for me the, the key of how do we deal with sin in the church, the scandal of sin. Mercy. What other, what other, what other, what other option do we have? We're not the Muslims. All right? We're not the Jews. There's not an eye for an eye or tooth for a tooth. We show mercy. We demand justice, but we also show mercy. But it's not, this is the thing though, it's great, but it's not easy to show mercy. Particularly, it is not easy to forgive. Now granted, we've been talking about people who maybe hurt people we don't know. But what about our own lives? It's not easy to forgive someone who's hurt us. To a great degree, what we're talking about here in the scandal, and to a great degree, we can apply it most of our lives, it's even harder to forgive someone who's hurt someone you love. Think about that. Someone who's hurt you may be pretty difficult to forgive, but someone hurts someone that you love very, very difficult, particularly when you're dealing with abuse. I think of my own life. I know a couple of people, one in particular I'm thinking of, that a close friend hurt very, very badly, abused when they were younger. And the anger that I felt upon finding it, that I still deal with today. I have a very, very bad temper. I want to kill that person. I want justice. But I got to understand, yeah, justice may be need to be served, who did this, this harm. Person shouldn't be on the streets, potentially could hurt other people. I understand that. Justice needs to be served. But is it going to do me any good to hate that person and want their destruction? No. I need to learn to forgive. This is the person who was hurt needs to learn to forgive. So, uh, you know, probably one of the great sort of lessons, the way I came to understand this, is I didn't print it up for you. I, actually, I printed up uh, a page from Father Jacques Philippe's new book, which I'll explain a little bit later on. Two little paragraphs. The first one that has the red on it actually is basically whatever Father Philippe told me, just expanded in a much more eloquent paragraph form. And I do suggest that you read that for your spiritual reading about our task to forgive other people and how easy it is for us to, to hold grudges, but that we need to help the victims to forgive. As he says, sometimes we overlook helping them, the victims, to understand that unless they forgive the people who have hurt them, they will never fully recover from the pain. Very, very true. We're going to get to the second paragraph in a little bit. But, but one of our, our, our article that I encourage you to read, but you probably have to go to Facebook to read it. It's written by, uh, it wasn't published in a big magazine. It was published by one of our alumni, Caitlin Davis. Some of you may know her. Caitlin, graduate from UL. She's in formation to be a consecrated virgin. Caitlin, one of the sweetest people we ever met and a fantastic writer. And in 2014, she was able to go to a mission trip uh, in Alaska to the village of St. Michael's. And so when she came back, she wrote this article, which she didn't publish until now, four years later, because of the rise of the scandal. It's called On Evolving Through the Scandals. And she got there, and she was there with this little mission group just to work with the, the children of the village and the people in the village, but they were never told that St. Michael's I would say, probably, I don't know everything, one of the worst cases of clerical abuse in the history of the church. A documentary is written on it. Basically, this remote village, sort of in Alaska, with all these sort of the, 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 the Inuit people there, and there were priests, nuns, and deacons. I'm talking not just one or two, but they would go there and just wholesale abuse the whole entire town sexual abuse, and justify it because they weren't really human. You, you probably cannot read or watch to hear everything that went on. And so these people who are now about my age in their 40s and 50s, lives completely destroyed. Completely destroyed. There are even posters still on the, on the walls of the church so you can remember who these priests were. Nuns too. Deacons too. Lay ministers too. Horrible stuff. Worse than you can possibly imagine. Justice needs to be served. But now these, this generation has had their own kids and they haven't been able to love them. And so the faith is just decimated. It's destroyed. And so Caitlin talks in the article about how much 
anger she had and frustration because she got to know the little kids and love the little kids and how easy it was for them to love her and the missionaries and her to love them. And then to hear these stories about the people who were hurt, the people that she's grown to love, not only the parents she came to know, but the kids and how angry she was and how hard it was to show mercy to someone who hurt someone she loved. But the, the key to the article, I'm kind of giving it away, is towards the end when she realized that the person she needs to look to is Our Lady. Because here is Our Lady having to forgive those who hurt the people, that, the person that she loved the most. And that she really began a great devotion to Our Lady and praying to Our Lady of forgiving those who hurt her son. And so she experienced this sort of like really tremendous influx of grace, which enabled her to be able to show mercy, to be able to forgive, uh, to be able to love. Still demand justice, but not allow that anger to eat her heart, to rot it away, to destroy it. And so in the same way, regardless of what the sin it is, is that if we have to be able to find it difficult to forgive someone who's hurt us, particularly forgive someone who's hurt someone we love, our children, our relatives. I'm sure we can all think of that. Our Lady really, in devotion to her, gives us that example of the suffering that she went through, but yet the ability to forgive those who hurt her son in, in such a terrible fashion. So trying to, again, land this plane, even though I've got a little bit longer of a journey to go, not as long as you'd have it if Father Champagne was here, uh, and at least I know where I'm going to land. I can't, I can't avoid it. I mean, I'd never get this chance. I may never have it again. Yeah. I got to take the opportunity while I get it. And we know how merciful he is. He's going and I know y'all are going to forgive me for hurting someone you love. A last point from Caitlin's article, and I'll read you the phrase. She says, when we do not let go of anger or hate towards someone, we have less room in our hearts for charity. We cannot, call, we cannot love as God calls us to love when we cannot forgive. We cannot love as God calls us to love when we cannot forgive. So important. Because what happens is that unforgiveness, that anger, whether it be to someone we know, or whether it be to the bishops, or whether it be to the pope, or whether it be to priests, I don't care what it is. If we allow that anger to take hold and root in our heart and twist it, we're, we're edging out the room for love. That we're still, granted, we're still called to bring justice, but we are called to love. Jesus did not say we're called to bring justice. Justice is his, his alone. We're called to love. And anger and unforgiveness, even when it's well-intended and seeking very legitimate justice, cripples the heart. Love is the most important thing, or that merciful love that we hear or we're going to hear so much about. Because what, what is the thing that really calls people to conversion? It's not necessarily as telling them, hey, you better quit doing it. It's the love that we show them. What called the woman caught in adultery to conversion? It wasn't Jesus saying, hey, don't do it again, but it was just that look of love and compassion. What called Mary Magdalene to conversion? It was the love that he, Jesus, got down to the personal, saw the individual, and loved them and cared for them. And the same thing, he didn't die for all of the church. He died for each one of us personally. It's that personal love that enabled the transformation that leads to conversion more than anything that we can say. Another movie, this is a movie that I'm sure none of y'all have seen, uh, and it's actually one of my favorite movies of all time. I don't, it's hard to find. I don't, I don't know if it's out on Blu-ray or you can stream it, but it's a movie called The Feast, The Sun, from 2002. Uh, I think, who, who's seen it? Debbie, have you seen it? Yeah, I showed it to y'all. Uh, I certainly... I generally, I think most religious movies are terrible. Just they're terrible. Oh, this movie's about this saint. Well, it's a trashy movie. You know, it's not a well-done movie. So maybe you see it and you learn about the saint. But, but film can be art. 
And this is a film done in 2002 by uh, t uh, these two Belgian brothers. They've done a number of films, the Dardan brothers. And I'm going to ruin the whole story of the movie for you, but this is how I'm going to explain it. So the movie starts, a very simple movie, about an hour and a half long, no big dramatic score or anything, a very simple human film uh, where this uh, man and this woman um, choose to adopt this boy from like a juvenile detention center, basically. And you see that the woman is furious and actually kind of leaves the husband because of this. And you find out the dramatic tension is this boy that the man wants to adopt killed his son. Killed his son. Now, the boy that they're adopting doesn't know that this is the father of the son. And so the whole film kind of goes through this tension of until the end when he finds out and it's just a powerful, powerful scene. He tries to run away, but the father shows him love. I mean, if you want to understand, I mean, clearly there's Christological symbolism in here, but the father adopts the son who killed his son. What does that sound like? It really is. And so the son comes to accept the father's love, not because the adopted father says, Here's some theological lesson because he showed him love in the particular. He cared for him. He let him move into his house. He, he showed him how to work. He, he showed interest in him. And so this is the whole thing. This is what the father has done for us. Even though we killed his son through our sin, we are just as guilty. He has shown us mercy not just by saying, hey, I show you mercy, but I keep you at an arm's distance, but he's adopted us through baptism. And so the true conversion that we sh should understand that we've encountered is the merciful love shown to us by the Father that we ought to experience. We're going to talk about that. That we experience that merciful love, that we know God as our Father, that we've experienced that mercy, as we've talked about, then we're going to be more likely to show it to others. Not just mercy, but merciful love. The love that calls people to conversion, that changes hearts, that can and does renew the church. And so I know, talked a lot about mercy, and we've talked about a number of the passages from the New Testament. I can't, can't finish this unless, of course, we talk about the greatest one, the, par the parable of the prodigal son. Just can't, can't finish talking about mercy in the church without that. And so often, what do we do? When we study this passage, we identify with the younger son, rightfully so. We're the sinner. The father shows us mercy. He receives us, and he clothes us, and he shows us his love. Very, very true and very, very important. And then sometimes we might identify with the older son. But the real key to the passage is that we need to learn to identify with the father. If any of you ever read Henri Nouwen's uh, the, the Return of the Prodigal Son, is that's, that's what the goal is. We identify with the son, then the older son, but then we got to identify with the father, because why? We are called to image and reflect the love of God the Father to the world. That's our vocation. It often comes, though, when we experience the love of the younger son, we, forget, we, receive, we have our own mercy, but to allow the Lord to forgive us, but more importantly, to allow the Father to receive us in merciful love. So for me, in looking at that passage, and this is sort of a whole other retreat that I've given, is that the real key to understanding the prodigal son is not that the Father shows the mercy, not that the Father necessarily even shows love, it's very easy to give, to show mercy, I forgive you. Very easy to show love, here's a ring, here's a, a, a token of my love, but he actually embraces the son. He receives the son, not only into his home, but into his heart. Is that fathers receiving us, and that we are called in the same way to learn to receive others as the Father has received us. To receive them mercifully, to let them into our home, 
to let them into our heart. But in order for us to be able to do that, and so we keep coming back to it, in order for us, whether we're going to be showing mercy, showing love, or we want to call it receiving others in love, before we can do that to other people, and that's how we really deal with sin in the church, showing mercy, we have got to allow ourselves to be received mercifully by the Father. That's the most difficult thing. It's the, the, the issue of the older son. The younger son allows himself to be received into the home and of the heart of the father, but not the older son. Yeah, he lives in his house, but is he in the father's heart? No, not because the father doesn't want him in his heart, because he won't allow it. And he's got his own reasons that he won't allow it, but he's closed off. And that, I think, is the key for us. And it can be the most difficult to allow ourselves to be received by the Father. Because it is the heart of spiritual childhood. This is kind of what I was going to talk about. Think of it when Jesus says, takes the kid and puts on his lap. Whoever receives one like this receives me. So what is the key to spiritual childhood? Allowing yourself to be received by the Father. And of course, when you receive by Christ, you receive by the Father because Christ is the icon of the Father. And that's how it works. Because a child allows himself to be received, to be taken in, doesn't fight or push back. Adults do that. And so we do the same thing. Why? Because we've been hurt, because we see ourselves as unlovable. We're going to talk about that a little bit later on. It is not easy. And that's where the second part, Father, forgive them, comes in. And I encourage you to read that. Is that we cannot forgive unless we've heard the Father forgive us. The ultimate source of forgiveness is the merciful heart of the Father, and we must turn to the source to be able to forgive, seeking there in humility and faith for the grace to be able to pardon and embracing the Father's merciful love in our own hearts. And both of these paragraphs are very, very important. Not easy, though. We're going to talk about that. And so... Luke chapter 7, verse 47, the person who has been forgiven much is able to love much. A person who has been fully received by the Father, who knows the love of the Father's heart, who tears down the walls and allows themselves to receive that love, to receive that mercy, to receive that embrace, is able to love much. And that's the key for dealing with sin in the church. Not just mercy, but merciful love. That we have an obligation to show other people, even the worst sinners, even the ones who commit the most despicable crime, they may deserve what they get. And we need to make sure that the victims are taken care of. But it does not excuse us from showing them love, wanting their redemption. They too can experience the love of the Father. We need to love our enemies, as Jesus did, even the enemies that we just concoct in our own brain. And how do we do that? And again, as I said, or we've talked about, it comes from our own experience of the Father's merciful love in our own lives. We've got to worry about the log in our own eyes before we can worry about the splinter in our brother's and sister's eyes. So, so far, we've really dealt with the, the splinter in other people's eyes, but we've got to be able to deal with the log in our own eyes. You know, I know that one of the names that have come up so much is Cardinal McCarrick. And McCarrick did some despicable stuff. And he will, I'm sure, face some form of justice for it. But towards the last years of his life, Father McCarrick, or Bishop, well, Bishop McCarrick, got involved with or became sort of the father to uh, the Institute of the Incarnate Word. Some of the, he was living with the seminarians, probably should not have been doing that. But those are the sisters that some of you know are the Servidoras. We've had six of our girls from Our Lady of Wisdom join the Servidoras. And they're a wonderful, joyful order. And the several times I've been there, McCarrick was there. This is before the scandal. And after all this broke, I thought to myself, man, those sisters loved Cardinal McCarrick. They didn't know anything about what he had done. The brothers didn't know anything about what he had done. And I'm thinking... You know, maybe it's the love those sisters showed him that maybe changed his heart. 
Maybe. I have no idea. Because what he did were, were years ago. I'm not saying he doesn't still need to serve justice, and anyone who covered up for him needs to, to answer for that. But, but those sisters loving him, and those sisters are pretty good at loving people if you ever met the Servidoras. Most sisters are pretty good at loving people. <laughs> Maybe that's why we have Oprah Father Champagne. The sisters love him. <laughs> so, I mean, I think this, again, I can only conjecture there. But hey, and I know the sisters still pray for him and love him. He's still the human being. Jesus still, the Father does not want him to go to hell. Doesn't. He doesn't want any of us to. And so, that challenge is when it's difficult to be able to show that love uh, and to hope for redemption. So, what's our homework? I think it's, we, can add, we can look at our, our, our hearts in regards to the scandal, or maybe just in regards to sinners in general, or in regards to people that we know. In our pursuit for justice and what's right, have our hearts become filled with vengeance, potential self-righteousness, anger, or is there mercy there? Is there love that complements uh, whatever desire for justice that we have? So maybe like see, you know, what does our heart look like? What does it fill with? Is there space uh, to receive the Father's love, but even more to be able to give the Father's love? And then second, have we experienced the Father's merciful love in our lives so much so that it has led to a deeper conversion and whether it be directly through prayer, it could be through someone else. And the Father shows his love through other people mainly, primarily. We're going to talk about that in a bit. But he can't show it directly. Have we experienced it? How has it changed our lives? And if not, to begin to pray, to say, Lord, I want to be more merciful. Allow me to experience uh, the love of the Father's heart, as sort of expressed in what Father Philippe writes in his uh, little essay or his little article. So keep that for our prayer. I think we have a couple hours of prayer and meditation, Mass at noon, and then we'll have uh, our next talk at three. So we'll close with the glory be. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. In the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.